Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Crash Course, a podcast about business, political, and social disruption, and what we can learn from it. I'm Tim O'Brien. Today's Crash Course, Sam Bankman-Fried versus the Crypto Grift. Every generation produces a financier or business person who personifies how easy it can be to part fools from their money, part smart people from their senses, and part the media from skepticism. There's a long list of exhibits in that genre, from Charles Ponzi to Bernie Madoff. Does Sam Bankman-Fried belong in that pantheon? Well, there's lots of evidence suggesting he does. He and the cryptocurrency empire he built are the subjects of sprawling fraud and money laundering probes. His company, FTX, is bankrupt, and federal prosecutors in New York have indicted the 31-year-old former multi-billionaire for a range of financial crimes. SBF, as he's known, maintains that he is innocent of any wrongdoing, and of course, he still gets to have his day in court. But today, we get to have my Bloomberg News colleague, Hannah Miller, join us to discuss this epic mess. Hannah covers crypto and is the host of a new podcast, Spellcaster, about the life and times of Sam Bankman-Fried. Hey, Hannah. Thank you for having me. Great to have you on. Why don't we just start a little bit with your own journey, since we're talking about SBF's journey. When did he first appear on your radar as a crypto reporter? I'm assuming very early on, but tell me when he first sort of flashed into your awareness. Yeah, so I started covering crypto in 2021, and I remember one of the first things I did was really start researching the industry and making a list of dream interviews. So I had all these names on it, and he was at the top of the list. You know, I really quickly learned about FTX. I was very nervous when I sent in my interview request to his PR team. They said I could actually speak with him, and I remember I was so nervous during the interview and was definitely still finding my way as a reporter. And he was actually very patient <laughs> during the conversation. So that was sort of the first time I was really interacting with him. And you were nervous because you felt starstruck? You were nervous because he was a heavyweight in the industry? You were nervous because it was a new beat for you? All of the above? All of the above. And, you know, I remember this was during the pandemic, so I was just in my little studio apartment with no air conditioning, just sweating and, <laughs> and and talking with him. You know, he did walk me through everything like pretty carefully. Like he was, like I said, very patient, calm. I didn't always have that experience with, with talking to founders. You know, sometimes people make you feel stupid, but he wasn't like that. And I remember walking away from the interview, just like so relieved. I was like, oh my gosh, okay, I didn't screw up. What did you want out of the interview when you approached him? Was it on the record or were you looking for just sort of a like a background or a primer on how the industry works? It was totally on the record. And this was around the time that he had talked about wanting to buy Goldman Sachs, which <laughs> I was like, what? You know? 
I want to buy Goldman Sachs. Too. Yeah. So, you know, I, I remember I brought that up. And the other thing, too, was. Wait, wait. But give us give us a year on this. This was 2021. So it's a year before the stuff starts hitting the fan. Yeah. And then the other thing, too, was he talked about wanting to take, you know, FTX U.S. public eventually, you know, and Coinbase had just gone through its direct listing. I brought that up, you know, and he was like, I think we do it a little differently than Coinbase. And, you know, now look where we're at. <laughs> Very differently. What was your mind frame coming into it? Just pure curiosity? Did you have a perspective on where you thought it might be going and how you wanted your reporting to shape that narrative? Yeah, no, I, I had known about blockchain since college. You know, I would have friends send me white papers. I wasn't personally invested. My aunt also lost a ton of Bitcoin in a scam, like it was a ransomware scam. And she had to pay in Bitcoin and use a Bitcoin ATM in the West Village in New York City. So going into reporting, I knew I had to go in, you know, with healthy skepticism as any reporter should. And, you know, I really doubled down on learning about the technology behind Bitcoin, behind other cryptocurrencies. And I remember I actually read like a whole college course textbook on crypto and blockchain and was like highlighting, taking notes. You know, I read all these books, all these stories, you know, trying to just beef up before I went in. Well, and just for our listeners' sake, the blockchain is essentially the architecture upon which these transactions reside. It exists in the cloud, for lack of a better description. And it's a community-organized transaction universe. And it can be used for accounting. It can be used for ledgers, for different kinds of transactions. And then along the road, people said, you know, we could also create a currency that can be used in this universe to help move transactions along. And it will be a digital currency that exists in the cloud. And that's called crypto. Is that a good working kind of description of that world? Yeah, I think that's a good breakdown. It's always helpful to translate. Yeah, I think so. And so Sam and his his cohorts come in with evangelical zeal and real innovative ideas about how crypto could change how we buy and spend and how we transact. And he's an eccentric dude, to say the least, right? He is, yeah. I feel like the same descriptions of him come up all the time. You know, this cloud of black curly hair, you know, the shorts and the t-shirt. And really with this podcast, we wanted to get behind that image, like what made this guy tick? And it was really helpful to talk to people who knew him early on in life. Like there's a lot of stuff that didn't make it in there. I was researching his high school, you know, talking to people who attended his school. We had an amazing interview with one of his college friends that did make it into the podcast. So it was, that was like really fascinating to sort of uncover the myth of Sam Bankman-Fried. You know, the very first episode of Spellcaster opens at a crypto conference in the Bahamas that has a Vegas Disney vibe, according to the descriptions of it in, in the show itself. And during that episode, you offer up the great Michael Lewis, who is a casual acquaintance of mine and a Bloomberg Opinion contributor, waxing evangelical about a youngster he's interviewing on the stage, Sam Bankman-Fried. And he says this to SBF. You're breaking land speed records. Uh, and I don't think people are really noticing what's happened, just how dramatic the revolution has become. There's a status upheaval that's going on in the financial world, and you're yeah. sitting right in the middle of it. So you have even Michael Lewis, you know, a veteran savvy financial writer who is both enamored of this spell that SBF is weaving and to a certain extent very credulous about what it all amounts to. Do you think that was just common across the board? 
was that sort of emblematic of the media rah-rah that surrounded Sam Bankman-Fried? Yeah, I mean, I think part of what the media loved about SBF was that he was available. You know, when I, like, for example, when I first spoke to him, I was really new to covering the crypto industry. I was shocked he even wanted to speak with me. But he would do that across the board. And, you know, that's, as a journalist, you know, if someone's willing to get on the phone with you, do it quickly, like, that's super helpful. But, you know, I, I think there were people who tried to question his aura. I mean, yeah, I did that first story with him. But last summer, I did a story that really questioned whether he was, you know, the JP Morgan of crypto. That was the nickname that everyone was calling him. And I wrote this whole story, you know, saying, like, he's not doing all these bailouts out of the goodness of his own heart. You know, he's doing this to advance his own power, his own clout, his own control over the crypto industry. So I think there should have been more people questioning. Why do you think there wasn't? Why do you think he had this sort of halo of boy wonder and indefatigable innovator around him that kept the narrative going? Yeah, well... Crypto is no stranger to scams and scandals and things like that. There are a lot of big personalities who are bad actors within the space. And I think Sam really tried to set himself up as an alternative to those people. He was talking with lawmakers. He was going to D.C. all the time. He was making big political donations. You know, he helped set himself up as the good guy of crypto. And, you know, I think... People in the industry, a lot of them wanted someone who could give like a, I guess, a clean face to the industry and were willing to support him. You know, his openness and his willingness to court people and to present himself as the ambassador for the whole industry and the one who was transparent and trustworthy in and of itself could be a kind of grift, right? It preys upon a certain kind of trust, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, you know, I think it was really a perfect storm. I mean, there was so much happening within the space. The pandemic obviously had created a lot of interest in crypto as people looked for safe harbor assets like Bitcoin or you know, supposedly safe harbor assets to put their money. And, you know, he really like it was a lot of different factors that helped propel him. But you can't deny at the end of the day that there were major venture investors who put money into Sam who, you know, maybe didn't push further in their due diligence, that there were celebrities willing to take his money and help promote his company and his products. I think the Super Bowl commercial (laughs) happened last year. That was like the pinnacle where you have Larry David doing a commercial for you during the Super Bowl. Like I was saying, it's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. Yeah, I don't think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. Never. It's crazy. And Tom Brady did some too, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So Tom Brady and Giselle were also, you know, teaming up with Sam. What's up? I'm getting into crypto with FTX. You in? I believe I'm in, but still hate you. Understood. Is he in? Yep. Did he say he hates you? He did. Noted financial experts, Tom Brady (laughs) and Giselle. Yeah. So let's cut to the chase. One of my favorite parts in Spellcasters, the first episode, when you go to a bachelorette party and then a wedding ceremony, you're in the midst of getting to know crypto, getting to know Sam Bankman-Fried, learning more about the industry. And you wind up at both a bachelorette party and then a wedding ceremony with a woman named Carolyn Ellison. And, and tell us a little bit about her and why it's so wild that you ended up in such close proximity to her. 
Yeah, so <laughs> I had known about Caroline Ellison for a few years. She is a childhood friend of one of my best friends from college. So it's a small world. And I'd heard about her for a while. Like my friend would talk about, you know, her friends from growing up and she would always describe Caroline as the smartest person she knew. So I was very intrigued by who Caroline was. And then, you know, I started covering crypto and then I realized, oh my God, this girl's a huge, huge deal in this space. No, this is crazy. And she's a huge deal in this space. Why? So she was at Alameda Research, which is the trading firm that Sam Bankman-Fried founded prior to starting FTX. And she eventually rose the ranks there. She went from co-CEO to just sole CEO. And, you know, this is a trading firm handling billions of dollars. They're a major market maker within the crypto space. So when I realized her importance and the fact that I was going to be going on a bachelorette weekend trip with her <laughs> in Memorial Day weekend 2022, <laughs> I was like nervous, excited. I also wanted to keep things very professional. This was about my friend, the bride. This wasn't about me trying to get a scoop. And I go into this in the podcast, but like, you know, there, we did some pretty funny, maybe a little bit embarrassing bachelorette stuff, like learning a dance routine to a Britney Spears song or, you know, just drinking cocktails and having fun. So standard pre-wedding partying things. Yeah. And then, you know, we did attend the wedding together. And about a month after the wedding, I ended up reaching out through her PR team, wanting to see Actually, if I could go down to the Bahamas to do a story on Alameda, because there was all this stuff about FTX, but Alameda was way more under the radar. And that request got denied, but they said I could do an interview with Caroline. So I ended up interviewing both Caroline and Sam. Looking back on it, there was probably a lot of turmoil in the company at that time. Caroline's co-CEO stepped down like a few weeks after I'd made that request and had it denied. So I think probably the cracks were already starting to show for sure. During that time. Now let's pause for a minute and talk about what you were sort of on the precipice of learning. Yes. And what you were seeing, which was, you know, in, in most companies that involve both brokerage operations and market making, you separate the exchange, in this case FTX, from the market maker, in this case Alameda, which has been described in lots of different ways. People have called it a crypto hedge fund. They've called it a research firm. Essentially, it was pulling in lots of money that was meant to make trades in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies more liquid. And those trades would take place on a platform like FTX. But you want a separation of church and state so that the exchange is pricing things fairly and the market maker isn't taking advantage of insider knowledge. That can be a fraught relationship across the financial world, even when people observe these Chinese walls. There's always problems around it. Sometimes there's fraud. In the Sam Bankman freed Carolyn Ellison world, there was very little practical separation of anything, which you didn't really realize till you started talking a little bit further about them. And you have another moment in the podcast where you hear about Carolyn thinking about breaking up with her boyfriend, Sam Bankman freed So not only are the businesses very cozy with one another, the people running the two businesses are literally cozy with one another. And a light bulb goes off in your head when you hear about this, doesn't it? Yeah. So these were two companies run by a bunch of people in their 20s and early 30s. And 
they live together, they socialize together, they're in the Bahamas together. And I was just like, how do they keep these two companies separate? You know, when they have to. I mean, you know, you wouldn't want customers to be disadvantaged. You wouldn't want Alameda to have sensitive knowledge of how FTX traders work. You know, I was like, how do they put these barriers in place when you're together 24-7, when you have the same corporate campus? So with these interviews I did with Caroline and Sam, you know, the, the number one question I had was like, how separate are FTX and Alameda? And how do you make sure they stay separate? And I will say, you know, Caroline was very confident, calm in the interview. You know, she said, we're totally separate, that they have, you know, barriers in place, that the only thing they really share are the staff who put in their, you know, food delivery orders. And then when we did the interview with Sam, it was so tense. He was nervous. And this is August of 2022. Yeah. And comparing, you know, the first interview I ever did with him to this last interview, it was night and day. And I remember I asked him about his living situation. Like, I knew he and Caroline lived together. I knew that they had broken up in the late spring of 2022. And he couldn't answer the question. I mean, he said he slept on a beanbag. I mean, he ultimately exploded during the interview, didn't he? He ultimately got upset with you, right? Yeah. It was more than just not answering questions. Yeah. I I mean, I really thought he was going to pull out. I thought the Zoom call was going to end. I think, you know, we might have even offered him the opportunity to just take like a breather, but I had never seen him act that way. And it got tense. And later on, both his answers and Caroline's answers were used in the SEC and CFTC complaints. Their answers to your interview questions. Yes. So I, you know, I saw the words staring back at me from these complaints. I was like, oh my God, that those were the interviews I did. (laughs) Where they said that these two companies were separate when in reality, they weren't. They were lying. (laughs) They were lying. Things are seemingly now a little bit smelly. You would come into this to a certain extent starstruck or at least in awe of sort of this mover and shaker in the industry spending time with you. Did your own thinking at this point begin to tilt in a different direction in terms of thinking about what you were looking at? I think it would have been hard for anyone in the industry to imagine the scale that this was at. And, you know, I definitely had my suspicions, of course, following that interview. And we published a great story. That's one of the stories I'm most proud of. But taking it to that next level was very challenging. And I will say during my reporting process... Meaning the next level saying that there's a fraud here, as opposed to just it's a messy operation and they're screwing some things up, but not yet saying the whole thing is a sham. Yeah. No, that's exactly it. And... I will say, like, people were hesitant to, you know, speak out against Sam. You know, it wasn't until after FTX's implosion that I had people come to me and were like, he was super vindictive in the past. He did this to me or I never wanted him to be the face of the industry. But I think at that time, you know, where crypto was already struggling and where FTX, you know, with these crazy bailouts and having raised so much money was sort of a beacon of hope for people there was maybe some shyness around criticizing them. We're going to take a little bit of a break. And when we come back, we'll talk some about the making of SBF, how this little boy wonder became a man wonder in just a second. Mm 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. We're back with Hannah Miller, Bloomberg reporter extraordinaire and the host of a new podcast, Spellcaster, The Fall of Sam Bankman-Fried. And we're talking about Sam Bankman-Fried's journey and the ins and outs of trying to understand who he was and, and why it took so long for people to come around to the idea that he might just be a scamster. So, Hannah, you were just talking about how you sorted through the fact that there wasn't a Chinese wall between FTX and Alameda, and you began to get more suspicious about what the operation entailed. And so you began digging more. And as part of that digging, you you end up exploring the world that SBF emerged from. Talk to me a little bit about that, particularly his college career. Yeah, so I was definitely just trying to learn what I could about Sam. And it really helped that I live in the Bay Area. I had actually lived in Palo Alto in Stanford housing, super close to where Sam had grown up and where he's now, you know, under house arrest. So I could picture the world that he lived in. You know, I knew people who he went to high school with, things like that. It all felt very familiar. Yeah, yeah. And I think having this idea, like knowing what Palo Alto is like, knowing what Silicon Valley is like and how people really saw him as one of their own. And I think that also helped fuel venture investments in FTX. That sort of context was just invaluable to my reporting. So, yeah, I ended up talking a lot to his parents' colleagues at Stanford. His parents were both at Stanford themselves? Yes. Yeah, they were both law professors and just beloved by students. You know, I talked to people who'd had them, who just said, Barbara and Joe are amazing. Like, they had me over to their house for dinner. They're incredible. They did such a good job of inculcating respect for the law and their son. I know. Well, that's the huge ironic thing. It's just his mom specializes in ethics and you know, they had these dinner table conversations with him growing up, teaching him how to debate, teaching him about what's morally right versus morally wrong. And it's just crazy to think that this person who, if you had to do a lab experiment to make the perfect founder, it would be SBF. Like just his background, his education, you know, where he grew up, all those things, I think, added to the myth around him and drew people to him, including venture capital investors. And I also did a lot of research into his high school. <laughs> what stands out to you about his high school years? Is there like a signal moment in high school for him that's emblematic to you of the person he would become? So I love this anecdote. They had, I think it was like a spirit week thing for his senior year. And they did like Bankman bucks. It was fake money with his face printed on it as like a huh. prank. And someone offered to like sell it to me. It was like one of his classmates. I was like, I'm not doing that. I don't like, no. You know, but he went to this incredibly competitive high school. You know, all the kids who were going here, like their parents were tech founders, professors, engineers. And you know, it was like super nerdy as a school. And it was like the smartest kids were the coolest kids usually. And I think that helped fuel maybe his competitive streak going forward. A lot of what Spellcaster focuses on 
is his love of gameplay, including video games, strategy games, that develops even further when he goes to MIT. And we have a great anecdote in there about how he would love to create these strategy games with members of his fraternity. Well, specifically, I mean, the one that stuck out for me was how he played diplomacy. Yes. And you get into that. And I think the people who play against him end up feeling like he's devious. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, deception was part of his strategy. He would win your trust, get you over to his side, and then stab you in the back when it was convenient for him. And, he, you know, it was, it was bloodthirsty. I mean, it's easy to look back and say, wow, well, there it was. But boy, there it was, right? Yeah. And, you know, again, MIT is also the place where he really started first diving into effective altruism, which was a philosophy that he claimed motivated him in terms of gaining more success in business. It was why he wanted to make money so he could eventually give it all of it away. I have to say the effective altruism stuff, I kind of believe that I've, I was in an audience with Will McCaskill, who was SPF's sort of, I guess, mentor and philosophical guide in, in the world of effective altruism. It would be hard for me to describe that as a philosophy. It sort of feels to me like it's a get out of jail free card more than a philosophy. I think McCaskill says during one of his speeches that you should just go out there and make a crap load of money, quote unquote, more or less, and then do good things with the money you make. But it sort of implies that you can just make a crap load of money very quickly without cutting corners or that you can just make a crap load of money and the act itself doesn't involve any kind of ethical considerations or possible compromises. And then you wash it all away by donating it to a variety of good causes, and then you get to go to your beach house. Isn't it sort of emblematic of the era we're in that a quote-unquote philosophy like that took root around Sam Bankman-Fried and his cohorts? You know, and there are many ways in which using investments and in capital wisely is liberating for people. It creates jobs, it creates businesses. There's also lots of ways in which you do it in a predatory fashion to feather your own nest and it can be destructive. And simply sort of telling people, just make that nut however you can make it, and then you can wash yourself clean by donating it. It's just too cute by half, I think. Yeah, like what you said about it growing up around, you know, SBF. It made a lot of sense to me. Like, I think a lot of Sam and how he presented himself was showing that he was atypical, that there was something different about him. It was also an angle that, you know, the media really liked to play up. I mean, he was the second biggest donor to Joe Biden in the 2020 election after Mike Bloomberg. So I think it really helped him just build up this image of... You know, he got interviewed by Bill Clinton at crypto conferences. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. So he leaves college and he begins working at Jane Street Capital in New York and he begins dating during that same period of time. Tell me a little bit about that era in his life. What did he learn at Jane Street Capital? Yeah. So, I mean, Jane Street, first of all, it's really prestigious. It's also a very secretive firm. And the podcast, we're actually able to give an inside look at like what a trading floor looks like at Jane Street, which was really cool to get. But yeah, I mean, it's very competitive. You are dealing with very incremental differences in price, whether you're looking at equities, ETFs, whatever. And I think it was a good fit for him initially in the sense, you know, that he found other people who shared his interests. Jane Street has actually been associated a bit with EA. We do know that he dated a colleague there who he later gave a lot of money to her crypto firm. 
So, you know, I, I, I think it's sort of set the precedent for this mix between personal and professional when it came to business. Mingling love and money yep. in a very random way. He decides then to head out of Jane Street Capital and venture off on his own and become a crypto entrepreneur. Yeah, so in 2018 was when he first really started building Alameda. And again, you know, he brought in people who he knew early on. He also brought in people from the EA movement. Some of Alameda's earliest backers are effective altruists. You know, they were out in Berkeley, like hanging out, building stuff, working nonstop. We have this great scene where, like, they've lost power. They're trying to get it back. They're trying to call the landlord. They're trying to, like, you know, get back to work. And it's like Christmas time. So these were people who wanted to work hard and their social circles and their professional circles were very blended as well. Like your friends were your coworkers. You spent all your time with them, basically. And in pretty short order, they began minting extraordinary amounts of money, in part because this was a new industry and they were on the ground floor and they had both visibility and market moving power that gave them a lot of control over both trading patterns and pricing. Do you think they as a group felt that they were changing the world with crypto or were they in on the joke? So we did an incredible interview for the podcast with an early Alameda employee who was very much excited about giving the money away, you know, had some interest in crypto, but was really all about EA and, you know, started to have doubts over the course of her time there. So, you know, yeah, I do think they were you know, true believers initially coming in. But at the end of the day, this was a very competitive thing. It was about making as much money as possible. It was about making sure that you had the right timing in place, the right people in place, because they were doing all these arbitrage trades in Japan. So it was it was a pretty complex operation. And I will say, yes, they were able to make tons of money very quickly. But these were also people with incredible pedigrees, connections. They were able to get a lot of money early on from friends, family, people who knew them. The stars lined up. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, starting you know, on third base or whatever. But, and saying you hit a triple. Yes, yeah. And then when Alameda was trying to raise money, you know, we talked to an investor who considered backing them. And he noticed that they were making really big mistakes at times, sometimes costing the firm millions of dollars. That was just one of the red flags about Alameda that convinced him not to ultimately invest in them. Did they all believe in Sam Bankman-Fried and did he tell them he had a vision? It sort of almost felt to me at times cultish. You know, they're living in the same place in the Bahamas. They share the same work. They are saying the same kind of chants about their mission in life. And the outside world's believing them. Did a lot of the people at the company believe Sam Bankman-Fried's lines about where things were headed? Yeah, I think so. Definitely the cult thing, that thought crossed my mind a lot during my reporting on this. You know, and just the fact that, you know, there were different tiers within the company. Like Sam had this inner circle of executives who were also, I mean, most of them were from personal parts of his life, whether they had gone to college together or, you know, were friends of his brother or someone he was romantically involved with, you know, these were people who had no separation between their personal and professional lives, like FTX was their life. And I know from talking from employees, you know, there who were lower on the food chain, maybe not part of that inner circle, that it, it could be very isolating to work there at times, that you're in the Bahamas, you're in a completely different country, 
the only people you know are your coworkers, and you're expected to work until three in the morning every day. And that, for some people, it was extremely difficult living there and being a part of that organization. I remember being struck by sort of the cultish kind of elements of it. I was at a, a Bloomberg conference in San Francisco, I think in 2018, on crypto, and I was part of a discussion about it. And I just raised the question that if it actually was going to replace old-fashioned money, fiat currency, that there was no central bank yet in the crypto universe. And if a crisis were to arrive, arise, there was no lender of last resort, you know, and that economies had spent thousands of years realizing that, oh, you needed some sort of an agent like this in the economy to deal with crises, who would be there to sort of catch the knives when the music stopped? We have the Federal Reserve for that out in the real world, but in the digital paradise of crypto, there is no one doing that. It's everyone trusting one another to sort of stand by their bets. And the woman at the conference, and I can't remember what firm she was with, but she got very offended and she said, you know, well, if anyone has to start talking to us about the need for central banking or more regulation, we're just going to up and move and go to the Caribbean. And I thought, well, in fact, that's what they ended up doing. It was either the Caribbean or Hong Kong. That also seemed to me to be like a red flag. Yet another one of the red flags. You know, why are they setting up shop in the Bahamas at the end of the day? How do you answer that question? Why did they choose to be in the Bahamas? Yeah, I mean, it was friendlier regulation. Alameda and FTX had been based in Hong Kong, which up to a certain point had been friendly towards crypto, but then really, you know, started cracking down, especially after China did so. I mean, China has an outright ban on cryptocurrencies. So going to the Bahamas, which was, you know, trying to position itself as a new crypto hub, that was really advantageous to FTX and Alameda. And, you know, they were an important part of the Bahamas while they were down there. I mean, just that conference alone, I mean, drew so many people there. And we have some incredible reporting in the podcast on what it was like to be down in the Bahamas when Sam was first arrested and brought in and put before a judge. You know, people were showing up and watching this event like as if it was some professional sports game. <laughs> on that note, Hannah, I want to take one more break and then we'll we'll come back and wrap things up. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We're back with Hannah Miller, the host of a gripping new podcast, Spellcaster, The Fall of Sam Bankman-Fried. And we've been talking about that moment on the precipice when people started asking hard questions about how he was running his business and where the truth resided. And he was ensconced in a, a luxury penthouse apartment in the Bahamas as some of this starts to come undone. You know, Hannah, you mentioned that earlier, and I think in your own reporting, you said it was hard to imagine the full scale of what was wrong inside the empire. This was somebody who had been compared in the media favorably to Warren Buffett and to J.P. Morgan. When did you start to think it was even worse than you suspected? Was there a moment when you thought, oh, my God, this is actually an outsized fraud and a lot of this might have been built on sand? Yeah, I mean... 
the image of him in handcuffs just made this feel real. I mean, obviously, I knew the situation was was dire before that, but seeing him being arrested in the Bahamas and brought out, I mean, he was just so disheveled. You know, I was like, oh, my God, this is happening. And it was crazy to think about. I mean, like like I said, crypto's had a lot of crazy stuff happen. I mean, this was just scandal after scandal, you know, collapse, bankruptcies, all in the months leading up to FTX. But this topped everything. The arrest, because it was so tangible and real. Yeah. And just the fact that this empire that he had built, that so much of crypto was connected to. I mean, the web of influence that FTX had was so expansive. You saw like other companies crumble in, in the face of this or, you know, have to file for bankruptcy or fledgling startups lose money that they had custodied with FTX. So it was just the industry was just totally reeling. And it's hard to say whether crypto will hit the level it was at when FTX was at its peak. But, you know, there's still obviously people who are convinced of the power of crypto, that there are still people investing in this industry. There are still people building in this industry. There's people looking to combine crypto with AI. You know, I don't think this is something that's going to go away. FTX also went bankrupt after uh, Sam Bankman-Fried was arrested. And one of your Bloomberg stories around the time memorably described what that bankruptcy revealed. And you wrote, Documents filed in FTX's bankruptcy depict a freewheeling enterprise rife with conflicts of interest, self-dealing, and very little controls over what happened to customers' money. Funds were poorly tracked, leadership was haphazard, and meaningful oversight appears virtually nil. Has anything changed your mind that that won't just be a very damning part of the case against him if and when he goes to trial? There's an incredibly strong case against SBF. And, and part of that, you know, they have all these documents. They have this evidence that this is what was happening at the company, like all the things you listed. But they also have guilty pleas from Caroline Ellison and from Gary Wong. And they're cooperating. They are cooperating. Yeah. So Gary Wong, he was Sam's friend from both math camp and college. He helped found FTX with Sam, who's chief technology officer. And they've given what they can to this, to prosecutors. They're working with authorities. I think it's going to be a real uphill battle for Sam at this point. I mean, these are very serious allegations against him. And the other thing to remember is that I say this all the time. There are still people who haven't gotten their money back. There are still people with so many questions of whether they're going to recover their life savings. I mean, the nut of what he's been charged with is a year-long fraud in which he used billions of dollars of FTX customer funds for personal expenses and high-risk gambles through Alameda. Mm -hmm. And yet he's repeatedly said he didn't know what went on there. Do you find that credible, that he didn't know what went on? No. I mean, I in that last interview I did with him, the whole time he was talking about not having anything to do with Alameda, but I knew he had orchestrated the company's bailout deals and called him out on that. I think he's someone who manipulates the narrative when he he wants to and uses it to his advantage. I think he's also someone who really likes to talk himself through things and give these very convoluted answers. I think it's going to be very hard for him to use those tactics to defend against these allegations. You know, Hannah, we always like to ask people on the show what they've learned over time. What do you know now about the crypto world 
and Sam Bankman-Fried that you didn't know when you embarked on this journey as a new reporter a few years ago? I think the top thing I've learned is that be suspicious of anyone who claims to be a hero, especially in this industry, and really question their motivations. Look at how it benefits them personally. And then, I don't know, I still think crypto has to figure out what exactly it wants to use blockchain technology for. You know, this is an industry still finding its legs, and these bad actors are just hobbling things. Like the rest of us, crypto will have to figure out what it wants to be when it grows up. Exactly. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today, Hannah. No, thank you for having me. You can find Spellcaster, The Fall of Sam Bankman-Fried, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find Hannah Miller on Bloomberg's website, the Bloomberg Terminal, and on Twitter, at HGMiller29. Here at Crash Course, we believe that collisions can be messy, impressive, challenging, surprising, and always instructive. In today's Crash Course, I learned that skepticism is always a healthy thing, even if you're confronted with the boldly new and innovative traveling under the guise of a mop of black hair and big Bermuda shorts. What did you learn? We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at the Bloomberg Opinion handle, at Opinion, or me, at Tim O'Brien, using the hashtag Bloomberg Crash Course. You can also subscribe to our show wherever you're listening right now and leave us a review. It helps more people find the show. This episode was produced by the indispensable Anna Mazarakis, Moses Andam, and me. Our supervising producer is Magnus Henriksen, and we had editing help from Sage Bauman, Katie Boyce, Jeff Grocott, Mike Nitza, and Christine Vanden Bylart. Blake Maples does our sound engineering, and our original theme song was composed by Luis Guerra. I'm Tim O'Brien. We'll be back next week with another Crash Course. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.